If you haven't done so already, Colossians chapter 1 is what we're going to look at this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look in, starting in verse 15, 15 through 23 is what we're going to look at this morning. A number of years ago, and as I mentioned this uh, incident, you may recall it, there were some uh, miners in Chile who found themselves trapped in a mine. Uh, Whatever happened, some kind of accident happened, and 33 individuals trapped in this mine for two months. Can you imagine being trapped like that for two whole months, away from their family, wondering how are we going to get out of here, what's it going to look like? And for two months, rescue workers worked around the clock to get these individuals out and reunited with their family. Uh, The cost of this expedition or this rescue mission was 10 to 20 million dollars. There was another incident that happened uh, not the summer of 18 where uh, some teenagers and their soccer coach were trapped in this underwater cave and they were in there for for two weeks, trapped underneath there. They couldn't get out, and rescue workers working around the clock to get them out. It's reported that, that some 10,000 individuals put forth effort to get them out of this underwater cave. Now, you think about the price tag of such a rescue mission. Uh, you can't put a price tag on it. Uh, there was nobody, there were no op-ed pieces after these incidents saying, you know, it's, it's great that we rescued these people, but it cost a lot, a lot of people, a lot of finances. Couldn't we have used that for something else, for infrastructure, for tax relief? It seemed like a lot of money. Nobody was complaining about that. Nobody was angry about those things. The people of those countries willingly participated in those events to save these men, to reunite them, to bring them back. There's no price tag on going and rescuing the lost Jesus, in his ministry, talked a lot about the lost and the, 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 the effort, uh, the, the value, and the, how you can't put a price tag necessarily on rescuing the lost. In Luke 15, there's these three parables that Jesus has to, to illustrate this. There's the, the parable of the lost sheep, 100 sheep, 99 are safe, they're sound, and the shepherd, seeing that one is missing, goes off, leaves the 99, to go and rescue the one. If you heard the story of Zacchaeus last week, it's kind of a picture of that. Jesus going after that one lost sheep. Jesus gives a parable of the lost coin. A woman in her house is missing that one coin. She goes to all this work, turning on lights, looking underneath furniture to find that one coin. Of course, the parable of the prodigal son. The son comes, comes back home, not sure how he's going to be received, And the father, in this very undignified way, runs after his son, embraces his son, hugs his son, and throws this huge party to celebrate his son's return, his arrival. There's no cost that we can place on seeking and finding the lost. As we think about this Advent season, it's it's a reminder to us that the cost, the effort that God the Father went to redeeming his people, he sent his son, his incarnate son, born in a manger so that we can know him, so that we could be saved. He goes that far to save his lost. Every parent, when we 
look at a child, our children who are, who are born to us, we, we look at them, they're so young and so small and tiny, and you can't see their personalities, you can't see their character, you can't see their, their skills. We, we look at that child and we wonder, who are they going to be? Who are they turning into? What are they going to be like? Last week, we looked at the what of Christmas, the what of Advent, the, the, the mission, if you will. We saw it in the story of Zacchaeus. This morning, I want us to think about the who of Advent, the, the who of Christmas. Who is this child in this manger? Colossians 1 helps us answer that question, who he is. Let's stand together and read it. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father, there is so much here. And we pray in these moments that you would give us ears to hear and to receive and to walk by faith. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Since it's Christmas time, I feel like I feel obligated uh, to tell an elf story. Uh, the movie Elf. Uh, this is not a movie recommendation necessarily, but the movie Elf is just, it's just a fun movie. And it stars uh, Buddy the Elf, who's played by Will Ferrell. And in the beginning of the movie, uh, Santa Claus is at an orphanage. And he's in a room in the orphanage with all these baby cribs with little babies inside them. And Santa's doing his thing, laying out presents. And uh, he's distracted for a couple of moments by a plate of cookies. And as he's distracted, a baby crawls out of his crib and he crawls inside Santa's sack of toys there. The next scene is Santa is at home in the North Pole. He's celebrating with all of his, his elves in the workshop there. They're excited. Another year has been complete, another year of success, and they're just rejoicing that it's over and it's, been, it's gone so well. But this, the, the crowd or the party is silenced because they look over at Santa's sack there, and this little baby has crawled out. And they're elves. They don't know what to do with this little guy here. They've never really seen a human, so to speak. And they look at him and they see him sitting there. And on his diaper tag, it says, little buddy diapers. And they say, well, let's name him Buddy. And he becomes Buddy the elf. And he's soon adopted by some elves who can't have little elves of their own. So they raise Buddy in the elf world and they 
raise him as an elf, like he's an elf. He does, goes to elf school, does elf games, plays with elf toys, and he takes on a vocation of an elf as being a toy maker. But the thing about Buddy the Elf is he's a horrible toy maker. He's just, he's slow. He doesn't always get it right. I mean, you've got quotas to meet. I mean, we've got to have so many etch-a-sketches made in so much of time because Christmas is coming. We've got to keep on schedule. He can't keep up with the schedule. And so he kind of gets demoted uh, to inspection, toy inspection. And it's just a, a disaster for him. Well, finally, Papa Elf, uh, his dad has to tell him, you know, Buddy, you're not really an elf. Uh, the fact that you're 6'4 and everybody else around you is like three feet uh, should have told you this, that you're really a human. And uh, your father, uh, Mr. Hobbs, lives in New York. He's a publisher. He doesn't know that you were even born. Uh, your mother, Susan Wells, gave you up for uh, adoption. And Buddy is just distraught over this. He's reflecting with Santa a little bit, saying what's happened. And Santa even has to tell him that, well, I've I've got to tell you that your, your real dad, he's even on the naughty list. I mean, this is scandal upon scandal here. This is really serious. So Buddy goes to New York. He goes on this mission to New York to find out who he really is. And it's just beautiful to watch him. He's so naive in New York. He's crossing the street when you shouldn't cross. He's, he's eating the gum underneath the, the rails as you're going down into the subway. You just can't, you can't do that. He thinks it's free candy. Uh, he sees a sign, the world's greatest cup of coffee. And he goes in and just celebrates with him that you, you've done it. You've made the world's greatest cup of coffee. It's, it's amazing. But Buddy is on this trip to New York to find out who he is Advent is, is this season or is this special time where we focus on who Christ is. Who is this child in this manger that we celebrate, that we worship, that we submit to and, and believe in? Uh, tonight, if you come to this Christmas program, you're going to see things that, that, that are not going to surprise you. You're going to see uh, wise men come forward. You're going to see angels you're going to see Joseph and Mary. You're going to see shepherds, okay? You're going to see a little baby Jesus there in the manger. And this is what we do at Advent because we're celebrating. We're, we're worshiping. We're reminding ourselves who Christ is. And it's what we do in Advent. We, we take these four weeks and we look at who Christ is specifically. And this passage here in a unique way, First Colossians chapter 1 reminds us this is who this baby is in this manger. This is what he is about. This is his background. This is his history. This is his power. This is who he becomes. And this is why we celebrate and and, and worship him like we do on an occasion like this. Two things I want to do with this passage is it shows us who Jesus really is. One is to talk about how Jesus is the creator to be worshiped with all that we are, and Jesus is on a mission of reconciliation. He's a creator to be worshipped and submitted to, and he's on a mission of reconciliation. Jesus is a creator to be worshipped with all that we are. It's straightforward in verse 16. Uh, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. If it's created, it it owes its existence to Christ. Uh, He planned it. He thought it up. He initiated it. He executed it. 
He supports it. He governs it. He watches over it. He is supreme over all of his creation. And what's special about Advent, what's special about Christmas is we have a God who's fully God, but he's fully man as well, coming and walking among us. Sometimes we'll get hit with uh, storms that come through Manning. I mean, like storm storms. In the middle of the night, storms where like the, the, the windows feel like they're rattling. You can hear the rain pounding the roof. And you can hear the, the trees moving back and forth outside. And sometimes it's, it's kind of jarring. It feels kind of uncomfortable. And imagine our, our kids coming into our bedroom saying we're nervous and we just we don't like what's going on. We're very scared and uncomfortable. And they just want to sleep there. And all we can do is say, you can stay here as long as you want and, and comfort them and watch over them. Some of you remember the story of Jesus caught in a storm with his disciples. He's sleeping on a boat, and these, these veteran fishermen wake him up and say, Jesus, there's this huge storm. We are scared to death. You've got to do something. And Jesus responds by saying, basically, silence. He walks out, talks to the storm, and tells it to be quiet, and there's instant stillness. He can comfort his disciples with that one word, silence. The storm comes to my house, all I can do is comfort my kids. I can't walk outside and tell the storm to be quiet because you're scaring my kids. I can't do that. I'm a man. I can't do that. But Christ can do that. Fully God, fully man. He can walk out and he can comfort his disciples by saying to the storm, be still, be silent. God is a creator over all things, governing, watching, and has that kind of power Verse 15, you have these two titles that are attributed to Christ. First, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. This is Christ's unique relationship to the Father. An image, you know what an image is? It represents, it reflects. You know, we've, we've got coins that have an image of a, of a president or somebody of, of power, of, of prominence. We put his image there. You look in the mirror and you see your image. It's reflected back to you. Christ is the image of the Father. He's making the invisible visible by coming as he does. Uh, John expresses it like this. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. The incarnation makes the invisible visible to us. And then the second title in verse 15, the firstborn over all creation. Again, it's another picture of, of, of Christ and his unique relationship to the Father. It, it would be quick to look at that passage and say, oh, Christ is the first created being. He's the first person that, that God created. And, and many have run that way, but you would be in error. I don't think it's what the, the text is reflecting to us. He's the firstborn over all of creation. Everything that was created goes back to him. He is the beginning. He is the, the, the power that has the supremacy. He has the authority. He's created all things, and everything owes its existence to him. He's over all of creation. And this title, Firstborn, takes on a, a little bit more weight uh, for us, too. When you think about the Old Testament, the firstborn in the Old Testament in particular, that son received the status he got the, the, the inheritance. He, he got the wealth. He got the, the title. He got the power, in a sense, that was belonging to him as the firstborn. And in essence, he was on equal par or on par with the Father. Christ is equal to the Father. He, he's just as powerful. He's just as much God as the Father is, as Christ is to us. Now, 
That is the baby in the manger that we celebrate, particularly every Christmas. That's who he is. Supreme creator, all-powerful, almighty. And it only makes sense to approach him and to celebrate and to worship him, have him first in our lives. If he is that creator, if that's who he is, then all we can do is bow in submission, bow in reverence, bow in fear, bow in, in letting him have all the authority because he's the creator God over all things. We put him first, meaning we're willing to rearrange our lives around him. If that's who he is, I want to live in conformity to him. I want to live in a way that, that brings him glory, brings him honor, in a way that, that pleases him, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. After all, verse 18, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Christ is more than somebody that supplements our lives. He's more than somebody that, that um, is, is a good example or is model of inspiration or he's there to kind of round out the rough edges of my life, but he's supreme in my life. He's first in my life. He's, he's preeminent. He, he is the point of my life, everything living for his glory, and I want to rearrange everything for him. Imagine you have a, a friend and they're sick, and you take your friend to the hospital or to the doctor, and you sit him down with the doctor, and he, explain, he explains how he's feeling to the doctor, and the doctor says, okay, let me run some tests. Gets the results back, and there's more question and answer. He looks at the results of it, and he comes to a conclusion. He says, you're going to die in a week. You've got a week to live. But the doctor says in the same breath, there's a remedy for you. You take this remedy, and you'll be safe. You're, you won't die in a week. But the only condition is you can never have chocolate again. You're going to be safe, but you can never have chocolate again. You're, you, as, as the friend, you look at it and it's like, this is great. Oh, this is such a relief. You're going to be saved. You're, you're going to be well again. This is great news. And you look at your friend and he looks at you and he says, I can't have chocolate. Really? I, I can't have chocolate. I'm not sure about this. Sometimes I wonder if that's what we do with God in our lives. God, you promised to be give me wisdom and direction and joy and peace and comfort uh, to give me life eternal with you, that there's, that there's meaning in my life because of you. You, you, you can use me and there's, there's hope and there's fulfillment. There's all these things. But we turned to him and said, I'm not sure I can forgive this person. I'm not sure I can spend my time like this. I'm not sure I want this. God has given us these great promises, this, this lasting, full, and meaningful life. And sometimes we approach him, I'm not sure I really want that. And we're kind of like our friend in the doctor's office. I can't have chocolate. He's, you're going to be saved. You're, you're, all these incredible promises for you. Are you willing to rearrange your life around him because he is that creator God? The reason we surrender all to him is because he is our salvation. There is no plan B. There is no plan C. There's no plan D. There's no alternative. It's Christ and Christ alone. And it reminds us what Christ is doing in the rest of this passage, that he's on a mission of reconciliation. Look again at verse 21. It gives us the, the why we need this ministry of reconciliation. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, we need to be reconciled to God 
because of our alienation, because of the, 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 the broken relationship that we have with God in our lives. We've just talked about God as, as creator and that the point of, of creation is for everything to be pointed towards him. But this also helps us understand our brokenness, our, our alienation that we experience with God when we approach creation as a means, as an end in itself, that we look for satisfaction in life, in what's been created, in the blessings, in the, in the good things that are there, we look to that to be our end. When creation is saying, no, that's the, enjoy creation. It's, it's good, it, and there's a lot of good things for you to enjoy there, but that's not the end. The end is God. The end is the worship of him. The end is, is knowing him fully and completely. It points towards him. Brokenness, alienation comes when we look at creation for satisfaction, for fulfillment. And when that doesn't come, we go back to creation. We buy more stuff. We buy more things. Hopes of being satisfied, hopes of being made content, hopes of of finding fulfillment there when that's not the purpose of creation. It's to point us towards a creator, point us towards him. But verse 20 talks about the how, how we're reconciled, how we're made right It says, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the mission of the manger. This is the mission of Christ in that manger. He came to reconcile us. When it talks about the shedding of his blood, it's short for sacrifice. It's short for laying down his life for us so that we can be made right with him. Holy God incarnate God coming in the flesh and dwelling among us, teaching, preaching, living, modeling, uh, doing everything in line with the will of the Father, and then at the end perfectly submitting himself voluntarily to the cross to die in our place. That's his mission of reconciliation. He does that by his blood, the Holy One dying for us, the unholy. There's a story in Mark chapter 5. It's a woman who's suffering with this medical condition. She has this discharge of blood that just will not stop. She goes to doctors. They they can't help her. They can't fix her. Years and years that she's had to live with this condition. And finally, she turns to Christ. Jesus is in town in some circumstances. And she says, if I just touch him, if I just reach out my hand and touch him, I know I'll be healed. I know I'll be made well. And that's what she does. She reaches out, she touches him, and and it says, the text says that she was healed. She was made right. I know there are a lot of unusual stories in the gospel, but this is particularly an unusual story in and of itself. She just touches him and she's healed. Unholy person touching this this holy uh, Jesus that's walking in her midst. And it makes sense when you, you go back and you think about it, maybe in the context of, of the Old Testament a little bit. Anytime something that was unholy touched something that was holy, somebody died. You've got the this, this story of Exodus, the Mount Sinai. It's the time, the occasion when the Israelites are going to get the Ten Commandments. And in preparation for that, God says to Moses and the Israelites, do not touch this mountain. It is a holy mountain. If you touch this mountain, you will die. You need to concentrate yourselves. You, you cannot touch it. Bad things will happen. There's a story in, in, um, in Numbers 2 of, of a man named Uzziah. And he has um, got the Ark of the Covenant. 
sacred special ark for worship in the life of Israel. And they're bringing it back from the Philistines. It's been out of their possession and they're bringing it back to Jerusalem. And it's being hauled by these oxen. And the ox stumble and it looks like this ark is going to teeter and fall off. And Uzziah reaches out to, to keep it, to steady it. And when he touches that ark, he dies. The unholy touching the holy. There's a story in, in, in Numbers 2 of Nadab and Abihu who have make this um, fire, that they're, this unholy fire the text talks about. And when they create that, when they participate in that, they die. When the unholy touches the holy, there's death. And you bring that to the story of, of this woman here in the, in the gospel of Mark. An unholy woman touches this holy God, and yet she doesn't die. She lives. It's because of God and his wisdom and his power and his grace and his mercy and sufficiency took Christ and he died instead. The holy died for the unholy. We touch Christ when we touch him by faith and put our faith and trust in him. We're made right. And it's not our blood that flows, but it's Christ's blood that flows. The unholy gets to live and Christ, the Holy One, dies in our place. That's how we're reconciled to God. That's how we can be made right with him because of his blood sacrifice for us. And so when we look at this manger and we look at this child inside, it should lead us to worship because he did that for us. He did that for you. And certainly the, the, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, who is that child to you? Do you understand that that work of reconciliation for yourself personally? Do you understand that I, I need this holy God to die in my place for my unholy life? I, I need his blood to flow so that I can know his healing, so that I can know his work. But even more than that, there has to be this sense Jesus in this manger, Jesus, as we look at him, knowing that he's on a mission, that he's not coming to, to spread good vibes and good feelings, but he's coming to die a real death on a real cross and be raised to real new life. If that is his mission, shouldn't it be our mission as well? Shouldn't we align ourselves with that a priority, with that kind of goal to be used by him it says in verse 18 that he is the head of the body, the church. When you become a Christian, you are engrafted into that body. Do you want your life to count for him? Do you want to be on mission for him? Do you want to join him in being used by him to reconcile others who do not know him? Others you know are struggling with depression, with loneliness, with dysfunction, with uh, consumerism, with materialism, all the people that you know in your family and your friendships, do you want to be used by God to reconcile, to bring people into a knowledge of him? That's who this baby is in this manger. Christ, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Savior. There's so many good Christmas hymns that we sing, aren't there? You come tonight, and we're going to sing some of those. You're going to hear some of those. Uh, we've sung them here this morning. You hear them uh, on the radio uh, as well. The deep, weighty, uh, just deeply theological songs that are out there, hymns that are out there. 
And one of those songs, we're not going to sing, I don't think we're going to sing tonight, I haven't talked to her, but one is a Heart the Herald Angels Sing. We're going to sing this in a moment. Heart the Herald Angels Sing. And it's written by Charles Wesley. And there's one line, it's the first stanza that goes like this. It goes, Heart the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Isn't that the doesn't that sum up Christmas? Doesn't that sum up Advent? That's who God is. He's reconciling sinners to himself. We who are alienated so that we can know life and promise and truth in him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we bow before your manger. We bow before your throne. Knowing that we are alienated. Knowing that we are unholy. Knowing that we have been made right with you by the shed blood of Christ for us. Continue to reconcile. Continue to work and burden us with your mission. Burden us with your priorities. Burden us with your hope. Burden us with your sustaining power. We ask all these things in Christ's name who reconciles us to himself.